this week on the Backtable podcast. Selling, you know, a paper and getting it accepted isn't just about having good data. And it's not just about having a good, you know, idea. Half of it is presentation, strangely enough. But if it's put together sloppy and there's spelling mistakes and it's written poorly, reviewers smell blood in the water and then they frenzy and then they they tear it up. So you really got to make sure things are clean because if I see that there's errors in some of the basic things, I'm going to really believe that they have a lot of errors in their data data collection and their analysis and you just kind of really become hypercritical as a reviewer and that's that's pretty common so it has to be really well packaged hello everyone and welcome to the backtable ent podcast where we discuss all things ent we bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice my name is Walter Coots, and I have the privilege of hosting today's podcast. Today, we are honored to have Matt Carlson as our guest. Dr. Carlson is professor of otolaryngology and neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic. He's well known for his high-quality research in otology and has published over 450 manuscripts and currently averages about one manuscript a week. Not only is Dr. Carlson prolific, but he is also known to be a successful mentor for trainees and colleagues in regards to research. We're excited to have him on the back table to give the audience an insight on how to conduct and publish quality research. Welcome, Matt. Thanks a lot for having me. Great. Well, can you tell us a little about yourself, your practice, and how you became interested in research? Yeah, I'm a, a neurotologist, uh, so specializing in ear surgery. I did a lot of my training, most of my training in Minnesota at Mayo Clinic, and then did my fellowship at Vanderbilt and went back to Mayo and have been on staff. My journey with research started with, like probably most of us, uh, in medical school, you realize it's one of those things that you're supposed to do or you need to do in order to remain competitive in a very competitive specialty. And so I worked on a couple projects and initially it was, I would say, I considered it quite a bit of work and kind of, quote, checking a box. But just through the process, I increasingly really liked doing it. And we'll probably get into some of those benefits that aren't immediately apparent when you start working on research. But for me, it became less work and more of part of what I would consider even one of my hobbies and something I really enjoy doing. Most of my, I would say 80% of my research is, is clinical and the small proportion is basic science uh, research. That's great. And, you know, I um, think if you pick up uh, otology, neurotology or one of the otology journals about every month, you and your colleagues will have a really high quality manuscript, which is, which is great. It sounds like to me, you've sort of figured out the system. Can you tell us sort of how you developed that system over time I mean, to make things efficient? Yeah, I, I think there'll be a lot of different subjects throughout the podcast that will flesh out that whole idea. But just some key things. So I think I feel a little weird even talking about this because there's there's so many pathways that will be successful for different people. And it's based on their individual qualities and their, their surrounding resources and how they work in the environment they work in. And so some of the things I'll present are transferable and useful and some of it just won't apply to certain people. And, and so just to get that out of the way, and by far, I'm very far from an expert. I just I keep at it and it's something... I'm interested in. So I think it's worth saying. The second thing is that you can read about five different diets and not lose weight. There's probably a lot of different ways to do well, but application and implementation is more important than just the concepts of how to do something pretty much for everything in life. And so again, a lot of different ways to be successful at certain things. And, and there's probably a lot of good ways to do something and you just have to apply it. So just saying that as well, but just some key concepts that I think are pretty valuable that are general traits or qualities or attributes that will help you be successful. 
The first is to be organized and systematic about how you do things. Uh, so early on, it's hard to stay on top of a couple different projects or what you're doing. And so have something visible or tangible to track what you're doing that you see every day. Like when I started off, I had a whiteboard in my office where I would see my different projects lined out on different rows and columns where they were at. And it was an everyday reminder of where things were just to keep things going. A second thing I think that's really critical is I'm generally a pretty enthusiastic person, but that can only go so far. And if you have good ideas and good thoughts and you're sitting in a vacuum, it's really hard to build momentum, enthusiasm, and keep things moving forward. So building a team of people who I would say are not like you in the sense that they have the same skill set because you want skill set diversity and diversity of background, but who are like you in the sense that they are motivated and enthusiastic and love to move things along. So a group of people like that, you just develop this enthusiasm that bounces off each other and you develop momentum, which is probably the most important thing for moving things along and being successful and having a good time doing it and making it more fun than, than work. Or the next thing I'll say is just generosity in individual projects. Don't look at every single time you interact with somebody on a project as a business transaction or a zero-sum game where if you did a little bit more than them, you should have a better, better authorship position it's not a zero-sum game. If you develop a good long-term relationship with a lot of people, everybody benefits long-term much more than any individual person would benefit on an individual project if you tried to look at it in that way. So, and particularly for people who are, quote, under you in the hierarchy of training or profession or career, supporting those people is critical and being overly generous, I think, is super helpful from many different angles. But just building their enthusiasm, energy for it, and also building their career is critical in the whole thing. And wh what you asked is the million-dollar question, and it's going to cover a lot of what we'll get through. So I don't want to persevere too long on this, but great question. Those are some great, great pearls already, Matt. Yeah, I think um, it's important. I really like your point about supporting trainees and maybe faculty or less junior to really support their career. And, and everybody sort of wins with that. you know. And so I think having that attitude is very helpful. Everybody's kind of in this together, and you can really help to support and, and build your colleagues around you. You know, I think one of the most challenging aspects of research. I'll often have a medical student approach me and ask me, do I have any quote unquote research projects? And, you know, I don't, we typically have some things going, but I think coming up with a research idea is very difficult. And, you know, if you don't get the research idea and your hypothesis and your methods correct off the bat, you may find yourself well into the project and learn that, you know, this really isn't going to go anywhere. It's really not publishable. So how do you and your team generate quality research ideas? What sort of, does that happen spontaneously? Do you have weekly meetings? How do you guys go about that? This is a really good question. I think a couple of things are worth saying. First of all, we think of a research idea. We think of a scientific study or scientific project that is very, we often are very narrow-minded in what we consider a research idea or something that's worthwhile for publication for you or somebody else. And a lot of times, many of the things we're doing that aren't necessarily, quote, conventional research still qualify or would be in this bin like quality improvement projects. If you develop a good process pathway or an efficiency or an improvement, publishing that and be making it more wide known is extremely valuable and just as valid or useful, or maybe sometimes even more than another, quote, conventional scientific paper. So thinking outside the box, thinking about the conventional research is probably the first thing. The second thing is people like you and I who are primarily clinical, we encounter limitations in what we do every day and just thinking about those things and and I write them down. So when I, so I come across something and I'm like, I don't know the answer to that, or this could be better. And I have a kind of a, I basically have a running list that I keep ideas written down over time and might revisit. I think good ideas are easy. I think really good ideas are a little bit less common, but I think the bottleneck, I always say when somebody comes up with a good idea, I'm like, that's great. Yeah, I can, you know, we can all have some good ideas. 
it's execution and bringing it to the end is where it stops. I mean, there's tons of projects that start that have the potential to go through, but often don't for one reason or another. If you don't, if you have an idea and you begin working on it, it doesn't matter. It didn't happen. They had, the primary goal of research is to develop data for other people to read, build upon, repeat, evaluate, and make better. So if you didn't publish it, besides just learning some of the process, it really doesn't have any, at least from my perspective, a, a huge amount of value. So execution is more important than idea generation. But when you think about ideas, think broadly. Most of what we do today is completely not how we would do it if we developed it de novo. It developed over a series of sequences through history and it arrived at a position where we would not, we would not design it this way now. So most of what we do. And so trying to think outside of the box, outside of how we've been indoctrinated into certain things and thinking more creatively about things, I think is valuable too, uh, just to, for idea generation. Yeah, that is a good point. So there's an interesting book, I don't know if you read a couple by Seth Godin called The Dip. And it's basically, if you have this big project, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm. It's it, all the projects go through. It's about 80% into it. A lot of projects just sort of dwindle away because that's where it really gets hard. And so I think knowing that's going to happen and having a team ready for that's helpful. So I think uh, getting the right projects, the right ideas, it, it makes a lot of sense. So tell me a little bit. So let's say you're a new faculty or you're a, a resident or a fellow and you've got a good research idea. What sort of team do you build? I'm talking about like other colleagues, statisticians, you know, do you have editors? What, how do you think about, do you, or do you need them in evolve a team at the beginning? How would you recommend someone approach that when they start research? As I mentioned earlier, at least from my perspective, having a good core team and then having kind of secondary teams, depending on what projects you're working on, is so critical to getting anything done. There's a lot of ways you can think about it. Like, there's a lot of times that certain groups have certain resources, but they don't have the clinical understanding of what needs to be evaluated. They might answer a question that's completely clinically irrelevant. And we are on the other side, typically, where we have, we're seeing all these issues and limitations, but we don't have the resources, including in the resources is time, is probably the most important resource. And so combining with these other groups that aren't frontline clinical care is super valuable for your team. So just to give a more concrete example, working with Basic Science Lab on next generation sequencing and, and using your tumor sample specimens or something like that from a surgical waste IRB or something. Then the second thing, second part of the team or second kind of group of other specialties that you work with regularly that you overlap with, we always think of like research and education and clinical care as these independent shields or cornerstones or pillars. But in reality, if they're done well, they all, it's a smear where one stops and where one begins is, is hard to define. So where I'm getting at is some of the best ways to generate ideas and build teams is through some of your clinical networks, like tumor board, for example. You have a room full of maybe four to six different subspecialties that have different ideas and you bring everyone together and you can really, some of these ideas and some of these um, projects can really take off in those, in those situations. So explain those teams. We all work with radiologists and pathologists and uh, developing good relationships with those groups are particularly helpful. And then just kind of exploiting your resources, what's available at your institution, what other groups are interested in collaborating. And then the other team is kind of your nuclear team. So you might go to these different groups depending on what projects you're working on, but who is your core team that you work with primarily on most, of, most or all your research? And that's probably different levels of trainees, including uh, medical students, residents, fellows, junior faculty, or senior or people above you in seniority. And then Probably other groups that could be in that are a statistician. Uh, for me, one of the best things our department has ever done is basically provide unrestricted access to good statistical support, which is just so incredibly valuable. 
from so many different aspects. So I basically work with a single statistician for the last 15 years, and she's wonderful. She's learned the diseases so well because we publish together on all these different things. And so there's there's no onboarding. She knows exactly what we're talking about. She'll ask questions about things that I probably forgot because whatever, I'm busy or, and it's just a really good working relationship. She'll keep me honest. We all, even if we have the be- most integrity and we were the best, we have best intentions, we always see things more than what the data actually shows because we want to see it. And so we overstate our conclusions or we read too much into some of the data or we call things trends, whether it's a p-value of 0.08 or whatever. On a research study, if you don't find what you're looking for, you explain why you weren't sufficiently powered or something else like that. But if you find something that you didn't expect, you explain it away. It's amazing how we manipulate uh, just objective data to say what we want or dismiss what we want. So she keeps us pretty honest. She also develops a lot of our tables and figures, and it's just, it's super valuable. I cannot emphasize enough how valuable that would be if departments would see that as a critical resource and provide that for people. We also have institutional support for illustrators. Some departments at Mayo actually have dedicated illustrators like neurosurgery does, which is awesome. Their illustrator is just amazing. I work with a person at Mayo, Bob Morial, who's just an incredible illustrator and just an incredible human being. And he's helped basically under institutional money. He's He illustrated the entire 550-page book on vestibular schwannoma. So that's a huge resource. That's part of the team too. So those are super valuable. And then, you know, your different tiers of people in your medical students, residents, fellows, and then faculty at different levels is important too. I think building that structure is super valuable to have kind of people at different levels. Like if I was working only with just first-year medical students, I wouldn't have to invest an incredible amount of time because they, they don't have a lot of the background and a lot of different skill sets that you acquire through medical school and residency, both from a disease understanding context, but also research skill set. And so I'll often have early medical students early to mid-level residents and then fellows working on things too. And then there's this continuum of processing all the way up. It's like when you're on call as a faculty, you don't get called about everything because there's a there's an intern, a junior resident and a chief on, and they're handling a lot of the basic stuff. And that's part of learning. We always think of like trainees as only being fed education, but half of what their job is, is to become educators because they're in this transitional period where they're no longer just receiving information, but they're mentoring and teaching people below them. And so there's a lot of value in having this, but it also makes it more manageable for me or for you to have these kind of several tiers so that when you get something, it's processed and filtered pretty well, and you can be more on the idea generation and critiquing and steering rather than you need to put a comma here, that should be a semicolon, you need to, this is the sort of analysis you have to do here. Yeah, those are, yeah, those are great tips. Does the department, is the statistician hired by the department or is it, is, are they with Mayo and how does that work? Different departments. So they're all hired under the Department of Biostatistics, or they're all under the umbrella of the the Department of Biostatistics. Different departments have different models, but just without getting in the details of like how they're actually, you know, managed organizationally within each individual department, we're given those resources in most departments, which is pretty valuable. Some departments will actually hire statisticians on and some will hire a certain amount of time on. You might have different people rotate through that sort of thing. There's different models, but for me, that has been absolutely incredible. Yeah, that, especially the help of tables and figures and that's, these sort of things can, can be challenging and that, that's interesting. That is statistician, exactly, they'd be very good at these sort of things to help out and instead of spending your, your few hours working on that, you can leverage them to help out and they'd probably do a better job. So now that you have your project, any tips for the audience on how to perform a, like a comprehensive literature review to sort of, that's a typical, well, I have a medical student or a resident, so why don't we start with the literature review, see what's already out there. Any way that you recommend 
how you organize your ideas, your notes, references, and these sort of things? Yeah, just getting to what you said earlier um, and what we've been talking about earlier about your idea. The first thing you do when you have your idea is to look up online and do a, you know, a cursory PubMed search or something else like that. And there's this Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. People have probably <laughs> already done a lot of these things before and understanding how what you're doing is different. So like in order for something to get published, usually you need to, there's kind of, you have to have a hook. You have to have a reason why it's valuable or to, or the addition. And generally speaking, there's kind of three buckets of hooks, but there are other things outside that too. But generally, you have to have a large N relative to the disease. You have to have a new idea or you have to have some sort of novel spin on an old idea for it to be publishable in a reasonable journal. There, there are other examples of that. But that requires that you do a preliminary literature review uh, just to make sure that it kind of falls in one of those bins, generally speaking. The other part of the literature review, so you kind of identify what your hypothesis is, what you want to study. I would also at that time pause and think about other overlapping projects that would require a very similar data set to analyze. So it might be that you're studying, you want to study the natural history of sporadic vestibular schwannoma growth. So you just want to study that. But then you might also say, well, how does aspirin impact that or metformin or how does losartan change hearing or whatever? You could just by collecting a couple extra variables on that one time through your chart review, you could have several different topics that are worth publishing separately. And so pausing and not just thinking myopically about the study you're doing, but also thinking about other studies that you might do. And then secondly, you also want to think about the fields you want to collect for the projects you're doing. I've done this so many times and all of us have done this so many times. You keep having to go back to collect more data because you didn't think of a field that you needed to do to begin with. And you start going through all these charts multiple times and it's inefficient. So look at other projects that have been published like yours and look at the fields that they've looked at and then think more broadly, is there anything else you want to include? And then run it by your mentors and other people to make sure you're collecting everything uh, the best way you can the first time as you're going through. And try to collect it, not through narrative, but kind of like through coded data. So when you run data, you can't run a descriptive paragraph. You have to have coded information in your Excel sheet or something like that. So keep your narratives light and keep your coded information better for statistical analysis. It just saves you a lot of time later. Yeah, I'm sure a statistician can really help. Sometimes I question, well, what's the best way to categorize a certain data so we can look at it? Like you see, you can't have this narrative. It has to be pretty, if you're going to look at it scientifically, it has to be somewhat categorized. So a statistician can be very helpful with that. I'm sure you've run into situations where they've been helpful. Yeah, huge. For you know, there's this process of spreadsheet cleaning. So they'll go through and she'll make sure that it's presented in a way that can be run for statistical analysis. She'll also do these internal checks, like just to make sure it's clean and makes sense. So she'll look at boundaries for the parameter. And if something's outside of it, or sometimes, like for example, I might have something like, I mentioned that this tumor is an IAC only tumor and I'll check that box and that's marked. But then the tumor size will say something like 3.3 centimeters. And then she'll say, well, that's an error. That has to be 3.3 millimeters or something else. And it gets flagged. So she does all these internal audits to make sure the data is clean also. So we call that cleaning the spreadsheet. And that is pretty valuable too. And that's one of the things that a good statistician will help you with if you don't have the ability to do it yourself. When you collaborate with the team, I guess you guys are generating this on the same spreadsheet or do you just have like one, one kind of person collecting the data? How do you manage the data. We, we typically use REDCap. We've used Excel in the past. Is there any tips on, because that's important, not only, you know, there's HIPAA, there's making sure that you only have a limited number of people changing the data so that it, we know it's clean. Any tips on that? Yeah, it totally depends on what, what the 
study model is and if we're collaborating externally or you're just using internally and all these sorts of things. So for retrospective collection or some prospective collection, we use REDCap. For most prospective studies, we use RAVE. It's an, I'm not sure how widely used that is across the U.S., but it's a system that we use for data capture. It's HIPAA compliant and it has the features you'd want for clinical tracking. For surveys, we use Qualtrics typically for survey studies. And so it depends on what system you're using. And then a lot of times we'll use, depending on what we're doing and what study it is, we'll use Microsoft Teams or something like that, where a lot of people can access documents, files, and there's tracking of it. So you know who edited what and you, you can work through it. So it, it really depends on what project we're talking about, but those are some examples of some of the platforms we use. Yeah. You know, again, I think that's where having a good research coordinator, statisticians, it can help. How do you keep all the data HIPAA compliant? How do you keep it where it's consistent and you don't have people changing data and other people are not knowing? All these little things really are important because if, if they're not done correctly, then in the back end, it is really challenging to undo all of it. That's been my experience. What reference manager do you, do you like to use? Do you use EndNote or Zotero or? Yep. I use EndNote. You should use one. Some people say, well, I just I don't want to learn it or it's kind of a pain to upkeep, but it is so nice, particularly when you have to change journals because it got rejected or whatever. It's just so efficient to track. So I use EndNote, but there's a there's a bunch that are available. Just find one that, that's good for you. The other thing I want to mention that I just failed to mention because it's so inherently built into the projects we do that I just failed to mention it, but it's so critical is having study coordinators available through the department as well. And that's particularly beneficial for prospective studies. That's critical for prospective studies, for identification of candidates and enrolling people and maintaining your study binders and, and working through any sort of audit or whatever else. It's super critical to have that sort of support for these bigger projects. But also our study coordinators will help with just basic IRB maintenance, IRB renewal, IRB modifications and things like that. So the less time you have to spend in those sorts of things, the more time you can spend on actually doing the research. I always say if, if education was only just educating people and research was only just doing research, everybody would be much further along. But there's so much, so much work. Some of it is complete nonsense and some of it is valuable, but that surrounds all this different work we have to do. Yeah, we're fortunate to have great research coordinators and just helping the IRB and especially the prospective, it's it's invaluable. And it's it's challenging to do without a good research coordinator group. Unfortunately, like you said, there's so many there's so many regulations and things you really have to do to make sure that everything's HIPAA compliant and you're following different mandates. So now that you've decided, you've kind of collected your literature, you've said, hey, we've got a great idea, you've sort of done some stuff with your statisticians, you're getting ready to write the manuscript. Tell us how you go about writing a manuscript. You start with introduction, do you do the abstract first? What is your thought process on writing the manuscript? How do you kind of start from beginning to end on that first draft? Depends on the type of paper, but most papers I follow very uh, pretty defined structure. When you're just starting out, develop an outline, just develop an outline and then follow that through because it keeps it streamlined. What a lot of people like to do is when they write things, particularly early on, they write circularly. They write about something and they go on to something else. They come back to it. That's a common thing. So if you develop an outline with logical flow and follow that, it's super beneficial. The more you do things, the less you develop a formal outline, but you just have a algorithm or you have a pathway in your, in your head that you use over and over. Related to that are forms, I call them forms, but a lot of the different things that you're always going to have to attach with every submission, your cover letter, your response to the editor for a review submission or for a revised submission, your title page, all these sorts of things. Just have one template that you use and you just change it each time. It makes it super easy and streamlined. So you're not spending time on the things that shouldn't require a lot as much time. 
So just saying those things first. But then when you're going through the paper, my the way I work through a paper in general is pretty similar every time. You usually have two or three paragraphs for the introduction. The first is level setting. It just says, this is what we're talking about. And you give a couple of general statements about it. And then the second paragraph is something about introducing a clinical gap that currently exists or limitations surrounding other projects that have worked in the space. And then your third paragraph is, hey, guess what I found in my pocket? I got the answer. And so that's casting the line is your second paragraph. And then setting the hook is your third paragraph in the introduction. Selling you know, a paper and getting it accepted isn't just about having good data. And it's not just about having a good you know, idea. Half of it is presentation, strangely enough. But if it's put together sloppy and there's spelling mistakes and it's written poorly, reviewers smell blood in the water and then they frenzy and then they, they tear it up. So you really got to make sure things are clean. Because if I see that there's errors in some of the basic things, I'm going to really believe that they have a lot of errors in their data and data collection and their analysis. And you just kind of really become hypercritical as a reviewer. And that's, that's pretty common. So it has to be really well packaged. So that's your, that's your intro. And then methods totally depend on what you're studying. Obviously, the methods you want to be able to, in the methods, you should not provide any commentary. It should just be pretty objective just so that it's reproducible. And if it's been done several times and it's a standard reagent or pathway that you're using, you're, you know, you're doing Western blotting or whatever, you can just refer to another paper that used the exact algorithm or pathway that you did. So you don't have to recapitulate everything. And then in the results, you should be objective as well. You shouldn't interject discussion. It should be, these are the data. If you have things presented in tabular form and tables or, or graphically, you should only refer to the things that are most valuable to pull those out of those graphics, but you don't want to be overly redundant between the two. And then in your discussion, my discussion is pretty f- standard. The first paragraph of my discussion, I pull out the things I think are most important in the results. And then my second or third paragraph might be other papers that have talked about this too and how mine is similar in agreement or contrasting what other people have done. And then depending on the paper, you might have some paragraphs in between that, but then you'll fi- finally come up on a limitations and future directions. That should be your second to last, that should be your basically your last paragraph of your discussion. Then you have a conclusion. The conclusion should be concise and it shouldn't overstate what you have in your data and it shouldn't provide additional information that's not related to your data. So it should just summarize it very well. I usually write the paper first, then I write the abstract because it helps me solidify what I think are the absolute most critical points which go into your abstract. And that's the whole thing. When you're doing a paper, there's been a lot of papers, a number of papers I've written where I thought the coolest thing was like a secondary outcome and it gets buried and nobody remembers it. It's like a talk. It's like people remember one thing at best after you write a paper. And so if you have a couple different secondary aims and things like that. And if they're sufficiently different, it's not crazy to consider writing it in a separate paper as long as you, you have to make sure your data is not completely overlapping. You have to be very transparent that you're doing a separate analysis on a data set when you submit it. But sometimes if the secondary aim or whatever is sufficiently different, it's valuable to separate it out or else it gets lost. It's just something that we've seen happen quite a bit. So that's kind of my the pathway I go through when I write a paper. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, you know, I think now I was thinking we could talk a little about, you know, how AI is going to change how we do research and we can leave that to the end if we have a little bit of time. But just bringing one thing up now, you know, I review a lot of papers like many of us do. And I agree with you when you start seeing just some grammatical errors, typos, maybe some of the data and the results doesn't really match with the abstract. It really raises a flag that can you trust all of this? And do you have an editor or do you use an AI type program? You know, now you can, there's a program I use called Grammarly that 
will, you can put a paragraph by paragraph and it'll really at least pick up most grammatical errors. And it doesn't change things like chat GPT and things, but it does catch grammar errors and things of this sort. Do you use any of these sort of programs or an editor before you turn in the final manuscript? We cycle it around. So whoever's writing a paper, I would say when you're done, it's not done. You set it aside and you come back a week later and you look at it again. And then you're not done. You set it aside and look at it again. When you're writing a paper, we make these mental leaps that the reader doesn't have access to in our mind. And so you have to set it down and look at it again. And even when you write something, if you missed, a, if you didn't put a word that was supposed to be in there, your mind will skip over it because you know it was supposed to be there, but it's not actually there or whatever, these sorts of errors. So you have to set it aside long enough where you're not jumping back into it and making those same or not seeing those issues. So after you do that, then you'll send it off to other people on the team and review it. We at Mayo we're, have a, a basically a plagiarism check that gets sent out because even if you have the best intentions, if you heard somebody word something perfectly well in a paper, we all resist it, but there's a small risk of that sort of thing. And so we run it through a plagiarism check, but I don't run it through a special editing service. We have enough. I think our pathway of proofing within our group is reasonable. I think with a lot of these resources that are coming out, we'll start using them more. But right now we're a little more old school and we just have, you know, we review ourselves. Yeah, I think passing around the group is a good way of doing it. It's just going to be interesting with technology changing so quickly that you may be able to run it through one of these checkers and it'll fix it for you. And then you run it through the group and it may save a little more time, but it's maybe not quite there yet, but I bet it's getting pretty close. You know, I know we, in the past, Matt, we've talked about you're a very busy surgeon, clinician, you mentor, you educate. I mean, you were literally publishing about a manuscript a week. And so how do you find the time for all this? I've always been fascinated by how much you can get done. Tell, give us some, and like you say, there's no formula that can fit everybody, but I think the audience would be interested in maybe some tips that you have on just being more efficient. What kind of comments you have on that? Just a couple things that are probably worth saying. The first is that the group enthusiasm and of your core team and having people that you work with is, again, I've said it before and I'll sound like a broken record, but that is absolutely the reason that our group is able to do these different projects and work well together. It's just, it's, it's fun. It's like exciting. You, you find a new idea that there's a knowledge gap or something maybe you disagree with based on your clinical experience. And you put together a project with a group of people who are enthusiastic and you get, it's like when you get the data back and the results, it's like opening a Christmas present. It's like, it's like, it's like a lot of fun. And so it becomes more of a hobby than it does actual work when you're in a really good team. Just a couple keys of efficiency. One thing that's never not mentioned a lot, but responsiveness within the team is critical. If you work with residents and they turn in a paper to you and you take a month to get back to them on it, that's a huge bottleneck in the project. So if you think if you have six people working on a team or whatever for a paper, whatever number you want, and each person takes half a day to respond to an email versus each person takes four days to respond to an email and just say there's 30 emails that are required to complete the work. Just imagine the difference in moving through that project of just being responsive and being accessible and things like that. So that's probably one thing that people don't really talk about a lot that's actually pretty critical. Another thing is that I think bundling time that you're working on things is really critical. So if you said, okay, I'm going to, this weekend, I'm going to put in two hours in this project and you break it up into 15 minute slots, you will get nothing done that entire time because it takes you 20 minutes to even settle into the mindset of working on a project and kind of getting everything situated. And then by the time you get going on it, I call it set up and take down it. That's part of the process at the time. So that if you can chunk the time, it'll be much more valuable. Like at 12 hours, altogether working on a project is worth 100 hours of hyper-fragmented time. So bundling it is good. And then you do the same thing with your, with other things in your life, like 
I'll have a, you know, a day where I'm just like, I'm not doing any work. I'm not doing anything else. I'm focusing on my time with my kids or with my spouse. We have date nights and all those sorts of things. So you have, I bundle my time and I try to focus really hard in that area when I'm in that time and then and not do anything else. And then when I'm in the other area, I try to put my time into that. I would say those are probably the important things. Another thing in that is saying yes and saying no and, and knowing when to do one or the other throughout your career and not getting spread too thin, but not saying no to critical opportunities that are important to you. That's valuable. There's not a recipe for it, except that early on, you should be saying yes to almost everything. And later on, maybe when you're 60, you can say no to a case report. But just understanding and balancing your time is pretty critical. I'll just say that our team is publishes one paper a week or whatever. I'm probably leading a third of those or something like that, but I'm working in a big team and we and we work together and I have my hand and I review all of those and I'm not just on a paper that I don't know anything about. That does not happen, but my involvement is variable depending on which project I'm involved in, but we have a great, really good nuclear team of people that work on stuff that's just super helpful and it makes it fun rather than work. Yeah, I think that's a great point about finding a team. It's sort of symbiotic, right? If, you, if you're doing this all alone and you sort of want to be the lead author or the senior author every single time, you're going to do much better if you involve multiple colleagues that can together, you guys can work on, you know, be the, the lead on different projects. Um, I know at, at UT Southwestern working with Brandon Isaacson, you know, when we start a career, that's what we did. And I think that helped publish more high quality publications than if I try to do things on my own. So I think being a, you know, a good colleague and, and sharing and, and creating enthusiasm together will really improve your quality and the amount of research. That's a great point. So, Matt, you've been, like I said, I think you have over 400 publications, exceptional. So what keeps you motivated to continue publishing? It looks like every year you're, you've got a couple more papers than the year before coming out. What motivates you to continue? To some people, it might sound like I have no life or something like that. But I, a lot of the stuff I'm doing, I consider those my hobbies. They're, they're things I really enjoy doing. I love finding a, a knowledge gap or something that I'm interested in that maybe other people aren't interested in, but to me, it, it's intriguing. And I like going through the process of doing it. I like building things. I like finite projects where you have something you want to do, you finish it and you move on to the next thing and you can look back. It's just, a, it's a rewarding feeling. With projects, there's kind of two or three different types of projects. There's the ones that you go into and you know it's going to be, it's just a single question you try to answer and it's probably not going to lead to anything, at least immediately. And then there's other projects that continually expand exponentially. So it's this idea of you have one idea, you find an answer and that sprouts to three different questions. And then you finish that and that leads to three additional questions. And all of a sudden you have this exponential arborization or growth or splitting that just, it just keeps feeding itself organically. So a lot of like our vestibulish one-on-one research is really kind of done that. And it's super rewarding because I think in general, those are the projects that can at least change how I think about stuff and how some people think about stuff because you're two or three steps away from where you were and and it just keeps moving and moving and those are fun and they grow exponentially. But I think just the biggest thing is team enthusiasm and momentum and everybody loves being a part of a productive, fun team. It's like everybody wins. And, And so I think if you can create that sort of environment, it becomes more fun than work and it becomes very productive and good and healthy. Yeah, I think expanding upon that, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, our goal, I think, as academic surgeons is we want to get medical students and residents and fellows really interested in research. And I think if they see an enthusiastic team and it's more than just kind of grinding through getting a manuscript done, I'm sure that's the way you, I'm sure a lot of the residents at Mayo Clinic really want to work with you and your team and probably some of the other teams at Mayo. Would you say that's true? They just if you mandate, hey, you've got to do research, most people aren't going to respond to that well. Do you see that your enthusiasm draws medical students and residents to your team? 
it does. I mean, I definitely get requests. I think all of our faculty get a number of requests from medical students and residents to work with them. One of the things about, quote, choosing your mentor that comes up is one of the things is working with an energetic, enthusiastic, but productive team. So if you enter a person's lab and they only finish one project every five years, you're not going to go in there and magically change output. So working with a team that is productive in general is probably a good move. I definitely hold people to what they say. At the beginning of a project, I try to define what everyone's roles are, what the expectations are, and what they can expect to get out of it, particularly for for medical students and residents. I'll say, if you do this and this, you'll be first author on this paper. These are the expectations. And I'll just say, I don't care if you don't do it, if you don't have time to do it, Just, uh, but you have to indicate that now. But if, you're gonna, if you say you're going to do it, I'm going to hold you to that and I'll support you through it. But this is the expectation. And at the end, they'll do their work and they'll get exactly what we said out of it. And so I think in that situation where they, there's no surprises, like they did the certain amount of work and they get what they were hoping out of it. Most of the time, people know that if they work on a project with our team, it'll go through the process and it will get published. So there's very few times where a project starts and it doesn't finish. So I think that's valuable too. So Matt, what do you think about open access journals? That's sort of a new, a little bit newer entity. I think people may be concerned that open access journals may be less valuable on their CV and for promotion than our more traditional journals. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily true. What is your thoughts on open access journals? And is your group looking at publishing more in open access? Yeah, open access is a great item to discuss. In some ways, in general, if you are paying a journal, whatever, $1,000 or $3,000 to publish it, they're more likely to sometimes, not always, but sometimes the review process is a little bit easier in some of the open access journals just by supply and demand. And then and having to pay the money. So like if there have been times where I, a certain paper wasn't accepted in a certain journal and we moved it to a open access and it got accepted. So there is that perception, but there are also a number of very high-end journals that are open access. The benefit of open access is that it's, as the name implies, completely accessible to everywhere and everybody in the world. So an article that is open access can be referenced by everybody and that drives citation. So in many ways, you know, the number of papers that you have referenced drive your H index. And so publishing open access will naturally improve your H index in some capacity because everybody has access to it. It's going to be referenced more. It's going to be more usable. Like we published a paper, Vestibular Schwannoma Quality of Life, a new Vestibular Schwannoma Quality of Life Index recently in the Journal of Neurosurgery. I think it came out like six months ago or something. And you have the option of publishing an open access or just standard issue. And we ended up wanting to pay that extra, I can't remember exactly, maybe around $2,000 or something because it would be distributed and used much more. So I think you have to decide, like, it depends on what your goal of the paper is, but open access is not, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's something different and it has pros and cons, but it's not ultimately like a much better thing or a much worse thing. It's a different thing and you can use it specifically in that capacity. Yeah, I agree. I think it probably depends on your paper, right? What you're, you know, if you want it widely read around the world, open access is definitely the way to go. The readership's going to be magnitudes larger. Some papers may not really have an advantage being open access. That's sort of how we're approaching at this point as well. Have you delved into AI like ChatGPT, any of these sort of newer AI programs out there to help with your research, to generate ideas, to do some preliminary literature reviews? Have you tried any of these new AI tools? I haven't, but I think it's awesome. We recently had a, one of our residents is pretty interested and he gave a great grand rounds on it uh, recently on that specifically. And it brings up a lot of discussion points and controversial points like, is it cheating to use a system like that to generate ideas or perform a literature review or even write a grant or to write a paper or to review a paper. And initially, everyone's, your feeling is, yes, that that's crazy. It's not your work. You're not doing it. But there are many examples of 
tools that have been developed over time that become more and more mainstreamed where it's now just a part of life. Like we don't use an abacus, we use a calculator now. And so it's probably going to be one of those things that as long as everybody has access to it and it's not, there's not disparate access issues to the tool, it's probably just going to accelerate everybody to be better. I imagine that a lot of this is going to take off, but it's a super interesting and fascinating. I think overall, it's probably going to be a breakthrough innovation that's going to change how a lot of everything is done very soon in the next couple of years, I would imagine, at least to some level. Technology that's really going to make a huge change in how we do things. Like you said, it's almost like going from the abacus to the calculator, right? Or getting computers, but it's, I've been playing around with some and, you know, you can really generate like just an idea list just for your own. If you're reading a manuscript, you can ask the program to tell you some background on things. It's pretty amazing how it works. So I'll be interested in uh, talking to you in the future about kind of how you've been starting to use AI on your research. Well, I think that about wraps things up. Matt, is there any other things you'd like to tell the audience before we wrap up the episode? Just aside from summarizing that there's multiple different pathways to do things well, and it's not just understanding how to do them, but it's it's application. You just have to start doing things to get things done, of course. And then finding a really good team and being generous within that team and thinking long-term instead of short-term. And particularly for people under you, they have more to gain from you being generous than you have from getting first author every time. And that sort of generosity will feed a good team enthusiasm that just magnifies the health and the productivity and the fun of the group. I'd say that those are the big things. And in departments that are able to support their faculty through a statistical support, plus or minus illustrations, and studies coordinators will dramatically improve the efficiency and productivity of, of their faculty. So just some things that I've learned over time. That's great, Matt. Well, really appreciate your time today. I think I learned a lot and I know the audience is going to take a lot of these pearls and, and hopefully improve their research endeavors as well. Matt, is there anywhere we can find out more about you? I know that you have a Twitter account. Any other ways that you communicate kind of what your lab's doing and what sort of new research is coming out? Probably Twitter is, is the main thing. And then obviously, just like all of us, we give talks and sometimes podcasts and things like mm-hmm. that. So those are probably the best ways. I don't have a Wikipedia page or anything like that. But yeah, Twitter, we put a lot out from our group and then our, on the Mayo website, we'll publish some of our research that we're doing too. So. Okay, Matt. Well, thanks again, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Walt. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.